The artist at work is God in his own world. But in that world, he is not always welcome. When creativity flows by itself, all is well. When it does not, artists and others pursuing creative and innovative endeavors develop techniques to get unstuck, methods to somehow reposition their minds and get back to their creative work fresh and anew. In this documentary, we are looking at eight recipes for creativity, tricks of the trade, how to jump over a wall 12 meters high when trapped inside without inspiration. Method one, constraints. Intuitively, one would assume that the more freedom an artist has, the easier it becomes to create something interesting. But regularly, the opposite is true, as we shall hear in the following story. Neil Biggin is a producer of music for video games. He tells me how his compositions were shaped by technical limitations when he just started in the early 90s because computers could only spit out bare electronic sounds in a scanty sequence. It was a fun time of being pushed to be inventive. When video games first started, things had just moved on from sounding like a digital watch to to sounding uh, like four high-quality digital watches playing at the same time. So, it, in theory, it was joyless, but it became... Um, it became a really exciting uh, challenge to to try and create something as from from something as restricted as that to compete with the other guys that are, that were already out there. So yeah, squeezing as much as I possibly could out of a very tight situation. It was a lot of joy. I never sat there bored. I never sat there thinking, oh, there's nothing to do here. There's no. There was always something. In 1994, Neil got a phone call from the Amiga Corporation. He had produced music for one of their video games a year earlier, which ran on the Amiga 500 home computer. They had good news. We are about to release our newest machine, the more powerful Amiga CD32. So they wanted a bunch of games, let's say 10, 15 games to be for sale on the opening day of the machine. So they picked their favorite Amiga games and said, okay, the biggest selling ones, we want to sell these. So can you remake this game with CD, music, more sound effects? And all of a sudden, I've, I can use a full studio. I couldn't believe the opportunity. No restrictions in terms of sound anymore. I could get a guitarist in, a singer in, whatever I wanted. I could have endless sound effects and I could have endless music. Neil's manager told him they wanted a full orchestral composition, something that is a cross between the soundtrack of this movie and that movie. Although Neil was a talented bloke, up until then he needed no great musical knowledge. But now, having complete freedom, Neil did not know where to start. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the position I was sat in. I'll never forget the look of the keys. I literally sat and stared 
open mouthed at the keys and thought, I'm done. That's it. The last idea is gone. Instead of feeling more creativity, having now the luxury to compose anything he wanted resulted in an overkill of choices. Today, decades later, Neil regularly still is aware of how constraints can actually be fruitful. It's an interesting point, I think, the subject of this conversation about restrictions and creativity and things like that. I think, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and all that stuff. I think when, when, you've, when you're faced with a lot of challenges, when you really have to squeeze something to get, get some joy out of it, when it's harder, you work harder at it. When it's easy, when it's all in a plate, you get lazy. And I'm including myself in this. Does this work now? This is my dad, composer and musician Alan Lauriard. Okay, constraints in the creative process have really been handy for me. And I think, and I actually believe in it, it makes you focus on what's left over and you can go much deeper and you're not worried about the... about. Uh, all the information, all the possibilities, but constraints. It doesn't limit your creative process at all. I think, when I'm thinking about it now, it makes your creative process more depth, more focused, and your final product might be better. That's In, in any case, that's my story. Yeah. Using constraints possibly works so well because human creativity seems to have its origin in precisely that, solving practical problems you know you can you can put all the stuff on the table or you can just put a couple things on the table when you're going to cook you can make real good food with just a couple of ingredients also you know you've created a game for yourself so you got to work within those parameters it's really um, um, gives you freedom makes it easier this is also what the french writers Raymond Queneau and François Le Lyonnais searched for when they founded in 1960 a group called Ulipo, which practiced and studied potential literature techniques centered around deliberate constraints. For example, the novel La Disparition, translated into English with the title A Void by Georges Perec, a notable member of Ulipo, a book written entirely without the letter E. The relationship with the audience is one worth looking at. If the artist wants to, he can consider the outsider as part of the configuration of the artistic expression and play with it. Not letting the expectations of the audience control what you do but deciding some of those things ahead of time and allowing them to be constraints that inspire you. Making lasagna is not a random creation. It is subject to presets. Your freedom is limited. If you deviate too much, it is no longer lasagna. We are looking here at form which is a constraint, albeit a conventional one. It is a bit more of an assignment, an agreement between the maker and the audience. Here, my friend 
Ola Yule joins the discussion. He is, he is not so easy to classify. A man with many interests, Danish by birth. A sonnet is a constraint. Some people can speak fluently a lot of sonnets. I don't know, it's a St. Vincent Millais. He's brilliant, uh, whether you like it or not. Uh, and, and, and Shakespeare certainly was. Uh, um, in that form, you, you take a form uh, and, and uh, uh, you take deliberate constraints. Uh, and and, and, and uh, what does that give it? It gives it a tonality. I, I think it does other things. The constraints are the language because without the language, you, it's, it's difficult to communicate to somebody. I really believe in that kind of thing. Although I do see the beauty of conformity, I personally am unsure of the value of caring at all about what the observer finds of your work. But if you somehow decide to deliver a specific type of art, your form is set and now you can only ponder over the parameters within the boundaries of your selected art form. That is not to say you cannot temporarily shift. On the contrary, as I put it forward here as technique number two, shape shifting. Think of an architect stuck without inspiration, committed to design a building for a client, can use this technique to first sit down to design a piece of jewelry, which he then later transforms into a building. Such a shift is substantial, but also possible is a relatively smaller shift. An advertising copywriter being paid to write a sales letter persuading housewives to buy a laundry machine could decide to first write a letter to his own wife in which he tries to interest her into buying one. We want to disturb conventionalism. There are typical ways to start a reggae song. Typical shapes and patterns on totem poles. Typical topics to cover in stand-up comedy. Form. And that is all fine if you are comfortable with doctrine and never get bored with the tolerance that is left over. But making something conform expectation can remove suspense. And that is what this documentary is about. How to fight artistic stagnation and bring back excitement to start producing again. So, shape shifting. By assigning a different form, even just for the moment, you trick yourself into a world with different laws and thereby free yourself from common assumptions. Here I am in dialogue with Emmy-nominated screenwriter, novelist, songwriter and vocalist Pauline Lebel, who describes having used such a form metamorphosis. I had to write something. I was writing a, a, a book. And I had to write about something that was really, really a painful experience and hard to write about. So I wrote it as a poem first. And it was kind of 
um, it suggested what happened. And you certainly got the feeling of, um, of sadness and distress by reading it. So when I put that in the book and then the editor had a look at it and she said, I'd really like you to expand on this and do it in prose. But I couldn't have done it in prose if I hadn't done it as a, as a poem first. And then I could work from that because it allowed me to um, to feel it and to move through it. Kedrick James, poet, musician, multimedia artist, professor at the University of British Columbia in the Faculty of Language and Literacy, teaches this method to his students. I use a term for that, which I think of as genre bending. Okay. Which is, you know, a joke, really. A play on gender bending. But um, genre bending would speak to exactly the same uh, practice of stepping outside of the form in which you're most familiar or which you have made a routine practice of in order to reinvigorate that form and find something new. But if I were to uh, write a sonnet, how can I use genre bending for that? Uh, you could use genre bending, I think, in a whole lot of ways. So you may decide to generate your sonnet out of uh, other texts. You might decide to combine two of these different Uh, provocations or creative provocations, you might decide. Uh, I have a good friend named Reeford Miller, who's also a poet, who wrote a whole series of sonnets in which he would take two different texts, often counterposed against each other. So uh, a, a romantic text and You know, maybe I'll exaggerate, this isn't a real example, but like a Harlequin romance and a engineering textbook. And then he would create them using those rhyme schemes. So, you know, Shakespearean or Petrarchan or what have you. Um, so that the A line, the A rhyming line would come from, say, the Harlequin romance and the B rhyming line would come from the engineering text. And he would very carefully go through and weave those, sew them together. And they flowed as if it were one voice. But the language keeps shifting gears on you. And so that's, you know, just, just one example of if you were going to write a sonnet, how could you uh, use genre bending or form hopping to do so? That, that would be one example of that being done. Each tiny part, freed from desire, unbranched, being one itself, a complete flower. Self is untouched, so finely divided, in seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, Eating, walking, sleeping, breathing, speaking, small, scaly, white flowers, opening and closing on the poorer soils. Others offer all ray and the yellow disc 
in the fire of deep ending on the ideas of the individual. Arching blooms about June kindled here in this life. The wheat concept arises from the wide Achillea, conquered by those present everywhere, pungent Brahman, if crushed. This was the first half of the poem called Yarrow by Riefert Miller, with sentences taken from trees, shrubs and flowers to know in British Columbia and the Bhagavad Gita. Riefert Miller took splinters of text he found and reused them to make something new. We stumble here upon a third methodology for escaping a creative headlock. Theft. Incorporate someone else's work, either temporarily, midway the creative process, or permanently, and either blatantly or after a graceful transformation. Doing it blatantly, that is to say, without doing much modification, will easily receive criticism. But there are also examples wherein the original artist expresses appreciation of the minimal twist. The tube he assumed to be empty still appeared to squirt toothpaste. Bass player and composer Tony Overwater with his idea on the contrast between acceptable and unacceptable artistic borrowing. I think the selecting of the idea of somebody else and, and putting it into a new context is never really theft. Uh, I think it's theft when you sort of copy a result, when you copy somebody's success, when you want to create a certain success for yourself by using somebody else, his uh, achievements. I mean, music is language uh, and language is constructed and these constructions are, is the grammar that we use, the musical grammar. And we cannot prevent to use certain sentences uh, or to use certain structures that, that we all use every day or that is being used. Um, if you, and if you name that you were inspired by it, I mean, there's compositions by Schoenberg that are based on the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. And uh, that's an honor for both of them, you know, to, to use and to, to reuse. Before Lord God made the sea and the land, he held all the stars in the palm of his hand. Pauline Lebel. And they ran through his fingers like grains of sand. And one little star fell alone. So one of the songs that I love singing, have sung for many years, is called Lost in the Stars. It's by Kurt Vile a part of his um, musical called Beloved, The Beloved Country. So I love this song. It's just so beautiful. And so what I did, and this was the first time I've done this. This is a couple years ago. I took the, because I love the harmonic structure. It is so exquisite. So I took that harmonic structure and just started playing with it, just started playing with it. And then I came up with a song 
about kissing. <laughs> so the melody is completely different. You'd never know that this was related in any way. And it's about a completely different topic. And uh, yeah, so that's my biggest theft. And the thing is, the, the, the chord structure was even pretty, and I'm playing it on the piano. It was pretty difficult to play. So I, it wasn't exactly a copy just because I knew when I recorded it, I was going to have to play it. So I had to make it, dumb it down a bit. But it's still like, and people just say, oh, I love it. I love it. And it does have a really, really beautiful, I mean, the chords are exquisite. Every time I play it, just, I get, you know, the hair on, and it's because of Kurt Vile. Thank you very much. One of my, one of the most wonderful composers. Before Lord God made the sea and the land, he held all the stars in the palm of his hand, and they ran through his fingers like grains So this is the original sung by Todd Duncan, who was in the original cast of the musical. And here is what Pauline made of it with her song, A Kiss by Any Other Name. But my heart knows it's much, much more than this. Called by any other name. It would taste just as sweet. Could it be a sign of the times? There is so much there already. Rather than creating things rare and unusual, you simply add things to the gigantic pipeline full of information. We have parallels of clutter and overload between our information environment, from horizon to horizon available stuff you can read, experience, look at, listen to, and our physical environment, like when you live in an overcrowded city. Here again, Kedrick James. I think that's to a degree why remix culture became so significant, was the idea that you're already barraged, and to create something original or new maybe not new, but to create something original seemed almost impossible. You're, it's always already been done. And uh, so people started looking at ways that you could work with what was out there, gather it up, reprocess it, and make it something new. Reuse, you know, in a sense, that whole idea of reduce, reuse, and recycle applies really well to the information environment as it does to the... Uh, natural environment, uh, physical environment. You can buffoon all you want when reusing. And here again, it is the creative you in charge of deciding how to reuse someone else's work. Don't copy, but modify. You attach, get fertilized, detach and cultivate. Design a hat in addition to an existing dress, then omit this dress and create fashion that matches the hat. Hum a solo on top of an existing music piece, 
omit this music piece, play that solo, but now on bass and in reverse, and then write your full composition on top of that. How typical principles of an art form really are is much easier to see when you are an outsider. Does all tango music seem the same to you? All graffiti? All types of licorice? On the flip side, as visitors in a world of cultural esoterica, we are blind to details that the insiders value. The people who listen to tango a lot can quickly say for themselves which tango music piece they value. The musical form, what makes tango tango, shelters the internal creativity and many artists do not usually touch such essential criteria. They do not redefine what tango really should be. And this refers back to my segment about form. The creativity is applied on common attributes. And that is how you make tango that has enough authenticity to get respect from the insiders. Everybody happy? Everybody happy. But if you are going through an artistic depression, then let's not only play with common attributes. Go beyond expression within the normal realm. Discover your blind spots. Take note of the things you have not questioned. And notice how much room there is for ideas of an unusual sort. Expand into different dimensions by being playful with atypical attributes. Change the rules of the game. And that is our fourth way to ignite creativity. What is cola? You ask Pepsi and Coke. Well, cola is a delicious soft drink and it has an identity, a brand. Coca-Cola's brand for a long time was stronger than that of Pepsi. Then, back in 1970, Pepsi made a smart move that falls into this category of prescriptions for creativity. They changed an attribute outside of where the normal competition took place. Here is what they did. A big part of the identity of Coke was its distinctive trademark, the hourglass-shaped bottle. And for many years, at the cost of millions of dollars, Pepsi fruitlessly studied new designs of their own. But then, and here comes the clever move, they introduced for the first time two-liter bottles, which it had discovered consumers found more convenient. Coke had apparently not seen this consumer interest, possibly because it was blinded by its own success, concluding that it was on the right path. 
there was no good way for Coke to sell 2 liter bottles and maintain their unique design because it would make the bottle too tall for shelves in the supermarket. And so Pepsi beat Coke by nullifying Coke's advantage and changing the rules of the game. How do we apply this in art? You change something that you usually don't. Okay, I can think of something here. This is improvising piano player and composer Lisa K. Miller, who talks with me about modifying her piano to change the actual sound. It involves, for example, placing objects inside the piano, touching the strings, so that they dampen or vibrate when certain keys are played. I've done quite a bit of work researching with um, some of my colleagues, Rachel Awasa, pianist in town, and also a friend of mine in Rio, his name's Claudio Dalsberg, and uh, learning how to do these things in the piano without damaging the piano at all. The piano is normally this certain sound, and when you place these objects in the piano and things aren't as you expect them when you play them. They come out differently. And it's quite surprising. Uh, and it can be quite um, quite uh, surprised to hear the, the, the sounds that, that you can make with the piano, especially some of the, the things. I also worked with Denman Marooney in New York City. He showed me a few things that are really wonderful where you can actually make the piano sound a little bit like a motorcycle or like a chainsaw. And you're not actually hurting it because of all this research to do it carefully. Uh, but the things where you prepare the notes where they don't sound like how you're expecting or in the course of playing, things shift slightly and the note that used to be a sweet note is no longer a sweet note. And um, I think that that sort of tension that that creates um, is really wonderful as a performer. And then when you're playing something and it doesn't sound, it almost seems sort of mystical where these sounds come back at you that seem to almost have very little to do with what your hands are doing. And you can have this relationship with a sound that's really fresh. My father's music group, The Note Band, consisted of a double trio. Two drummers, two bass players, and two saxophone players. Just that setting alone, something plenty bands do nothing interesting with, made everything else that followed in opposition to the expected overall sound. First of all, it was a practical choice. There was a, two good bass players around, and there were some good drummers, friends, good players, and one other good saxophone. I played saxophone. And the kind of music which I kind of envisioned even before I started writing. Um, and I wanted to do something different also. It's nice. So, but I, I, with that case, I really envisioned the music before I started making it. And I can do that with, hey, 
two bass I can I can work one low one high these characters are good characters for this music these two drummers I just tell him and that was the hardest part telling drummers what to do so one drummer does one thing and the other drummer has to do something complimentary that was tough because the drummers are difficult now the sax players just play what they're supposed to play now that was easy and in one particular piece my dad did something else that is usually left alone in modern Western music. So, so what, what I did one piece, it was supposed to sound kind of, it was, it was called Vietnam, the piece, and we tuned ourselves a quarter of a tone part, so pulling the mouthpiece out so that the notes are quarter tone difference. Yeah, they're off, they're off perfect pitch. Off pitch, yeah. All right, but for, for somebody with ears like mine, uh, I, I'm not even gonna notice that. Yeah, you can notice because it's gonna sound really out of tune. The two saxophones, but if oh, you sing from each other, from each other, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So then, you, if you have like twelve notes in one saxophone scale, and the next saxophone begins a quarter tone, so you got twenty-four notes. It's not all that easy as it sounds, but that—that that was the plan in any case. Perhaps you can detect what he is talking about in this recording performed live in Berlin in 1982. The vocals are by Gretje Bijma. Technique number five, alternate craftsmanship. When I was 19, I started a small advertising agency and fell in love with copywriting. I noticed that writing on an old typewriter produced an essentially different text than when writing on a computer. My typewriter was ancient and did not have a backspace key. So you better know what to write before you start typing. And if you regret the first words of a sentence, you are then faced with the challenge to somehow continue anyway, if you do not want to get messy with correction fluid. And so this is what I mean with alternate craftsmanship. Find an irregular way to accomplish the same thing. Disturb conditioned automatisms by using a different instrument, medium, procedure or working environment to evoke new fertility and avoid paved cow paths. With Pauline LaBelle, I talk about various ways to use the human voice. Uh, is there a different way of singing, for example, with a corset or with after inhaling helium? Uh, you would sing very high. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had to sing in a corset. It was this awful show I had to do. It was terrible. You just, yeah, it's it's pretty hard to sing with a corset because you you're not getting the massage of your internal organs that you really need to sing well. I don't know how they did it in the old days. How about hanging upside down? Uh, no, I don't really like hanging upside down. No. But it would certainly change your voice. 
It would. I mean, yes. Maybe not for the better. Could I try it now? Sure. Okay. Well, let me just see what I can do. Well, actually, it makes my voice deeper, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, now I know how to do. I'm uh, this afternoon. I'm going to record a friend's song because uh, he's recorded it before in English, but he's written it, he translated it in French. Because he's approaching uh, Radio Canada with this play thing he's, like, he's got. So um, this will be very good for actually singing uh, singing that song. Because I, I think I want to have gravitas when I'm singing that song. So that's a good thing to try. Thank you very much, Tristan. <laughs> so we are adjusting the variables of fabrication, composition, or just generally how to go about doing what you do. A different procedure, doing at the very end what you normally do at the beginning. A different working environment. And I'm not talking here about getting inspiration from working in unusual surroundings, because we shall look at that too, but here I just mean changing the lighting in your workshop, wearing earplugs or sitting in another chair using different instruments and material, like attempting calligraphy by imprinting your boots into snow. In my own example of writing text on an old typewriter, this mark made by the production process obviously remains also if the words are then later transferred to a different medium. Here is Kedrick James about such a permanently enclosed, distinct aroma of a text. Um, the materiality of a text, we need to understand. It's almost that idea that Walter Benjamin has when he uh, talks about um, the idea of the materiality of the text having an aura, and that you know he's making a comparison. Um, about works of art where there's a unique example of it or a mass-produced example of it, and its original state sort of absorbs a lot of the energy around it. I think that the material processes involved in any production um, imbue the final product with intent, and the intent continues to resonate uh, long after that thing has you know, left its original creator or what have you. Um, that in, and, and that the material circumstances of its creation are deeply significant. There, there's a big part of the spirit, or as you mentioned, the kind of soul of the work that comes through its manufacture, the actual uh, uh, working things, um, shaping them. So, operation elements impregnate the work and will continue to recite there, comfortably and noticeably. Look at a piece of furniture made with hand tools, 
where the woodworker had to carefully select the wood, sharpen his chisel, strike his mallet. This chair or table will come alive, develop personality in the process and radiate it for good. The conditions of the craftsmanship with which you can goof around and the emotive force the artist put into it. The intent. Intent. Can we make art without it? Yes, we can. And it even has a name. Aleatoricism. And this is number six in my list of creativity kickstarters. Yes, aleatoric meaning uh, dice and a roll of the die, uh, which of course gets its glorious uh, birth in Un coup de day, uh, Jamais Nabolira le chance. Uh, Kedrick memorizes the title of this work slightly incorrectly. That should be Un coup de day. Jamais n'abolira le hasard, which translates to a throw of the dice will never abolish chance, a work by the French symbolist poet Stéphane Mayarmé. Um, in which he creates a poem rolling dice and using the dice to select the lines and the words. And to me, it's, it's a beautiful... It's a beautiful uh, concept, and I, I, you know, I can't put the exact date on it, but I think it's about, it's the 1860s he publishes that, and I mean, just opens a whole world to how not only literature can be constructed, but how it can look. Meyer May was brilliant at being able to do that particular thing of just radicalizing our engagement with language and what it could possibly be. Mayarmé went quite far, but did remain selective and responsible with where to incorporate random elements. And you must, to not produce unidentifiable, meaningless garbage. You may feel introducing something randomly generated removes authorship. But it is questionable how much authorship you have in general, as we easily, and without always being aware of it, use ideas picked up elsewhere. Unconscious theft, as also discussed earlier. And, all right, let's say you become less the creator the one giving life, perhaps it is okay to shift to the role of the selector. With the right software, you could quickly generate a hundred ideas, a thousand, and then you need to look at them all, absorb them, and select only a few interesting ones. Serendipity. And then there is always the option to still change what you find. You are starting with something, anything somewhat usable, to then apply creativity while you overthrow and reconstruct. 
The source of your input does not need to be human or computer-generated randomness per se. It can be just data from an unrelated source. When you have water damage or other urban or domestic decay somewhere, take a photo. There are beautiful shapes there. Walk through a forest and see how tree stumps look like castles. Or how about choreographing a dance based on natural primitive movements already known to the human body, such as those seen in footage of riots. Improvising piano player and composer Lisa K. Miller wrote her doctoral thesis about the emergence of language in her infant son and recorded musical compositions to go with it. So there were seven movements, and the first one was called I Cried, it was all about crying. I don't have them all memorized. Uh, uh, one was Scribble Talk, which was the uh, inflective kind of speech that children have when they don't have their... So it, the, the inflection has meaning, but there's no words yet. And then there was he for um, when he was about eight months, two year and a half or something, he spoke in sound effects. So he had about 40 different sounds and they were consistent. Um, so I wrote up, that's one of the movements and it was called Da Truck because he had, um, well, that was one of his first words, but he had whoop, 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 was duck and was sweep, um, was bike. And there, it was wonderful. We tried to teach him uh, sign language because that's a thing that you do now. You teach your kids sign language. And he never grabbed onto that, but he, gra he had these sound effects that he spoke with. And that was really, really fun period when he, he was doing this. And some of the other movements move on to a more abstract representation of grammar. So there's a whole album for me that's, that was inspired by my son's emergence of language and my doctoral thesis was about that. It will be clear that such a pursuit is also about mimicry, but central is to, at least for the time being, take away decisions of the artist as she goes hunting for secret, hidden, creative currency in unexpected places that are not the realm of her own art form as would be the case with technique number three, theft. We move on to the next method to ignite creativity, immersion. Inviting artistic cross-current by exposing oneself to a different infusion or placing oneself in a different environment as this could fuel your own novel ideas. It is not about grabbing and incorporating something you discover in the wild, but about using it to set astir the soul. 
I ask video game music producer Neil Biggin if he had the task to make music for a horror video game, would it help to first go sit in a dark cellar or walk around on a spooky graveyard? In my opinion, it absolutely works. I have very specific environments that I like to write music in. And if my environment changes, my music changes. No doubt about that. There came a time I had to do a game called Loaded for the PlayStation. And they said, we, we need it to be dark, aggressive, moody. Well, I'd never really written dark, aggressive, moody. So they were all written at night in the winter with the blinds shut and just a little orange or red light on in the room. Really a dark, closed environment. Uh, writing dark music in the dark. I couldn't do that in a field full of flowers. It wouldn't wouldn't happen. I think a lot of musicians are influenced by their environment, but I really, really am. And as a, I'm a photographer as well, and if I'm wanting to shoot scary shots, I have on scary music. There's a horror channel I find online that does really experimental horror music, and I listen to that, and the work is really influenced by the soundtrack. So even though there's no sound on the photographs, you can tell by looking at the photographs that 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 there's a there was a mood there at the time. Similarly, I always found it difficult to to create the more Disney cartoony type things because I'm a serious person. I I'm I'm a funny person too, but I I'm not a kid and I'm not into kiddie things and I don't like I don't listen to cartoons. I don't watch cartoons. So for me to create in that kind of vacuum a jolly, happy, uh, childlike piece, very, very difficult. But I'm, I'm imagining if I went and sat in a kindergarten for a week among all those sights and sounds and smells and then set my gear up in a kindergarten, then that would have an influence and away we go. So I, I, I definitely believe in that. To soak up the right creative arousal for his work as an artist and for a regular fresh puff of air in his personal and professional life as a professor, Kedrick James decided to buy a ranch in the Canadian wilderness. So I'm constantly setting up this ranch and to go and commune with a whole lot of animals because it's full of wildlife and the wildlife is exceptionally, uh, I don't know, present. You know, when I say I'm having trouble relating to the current state of affairs, uh, partly because I'm developing disciplines that take me as far out as I can get. I, I think that's sort of what I'm referring to, like different approaches to being able to uh, be enraptured with, you know, the whole of creation, so to speak. And that that's my drive like without that i don't know how i can continue to create my weird obscure artwork it needs that sense of real otherness in order to keep driving it in order to keep the sense that you got this time on earth you should make really really good use of it um but the sense for me now is that those practices showed me what's possible and 
you investigate what that leaves open to you. Um, the whole physical uh, environment takes on a very personal uh, uh, aspect. It becomes engaging. Clouds become muscular and everything is interacting with you. And, and that's very close to the experience I have when I'm actually doing that kind of retreat and experiencing my time with all the animals that it's a very communicative space. The aim is to absorb something foreign. Deny yourself the oxygen you have grown used to, because today you will dive in a pool of liquid curiosities. Drown, suck new concepts into your lungs and crawl ashore with unassumed stamina as an artistic beast whose existence has not been proven. There are worlds you do not know of, and until you go there, there are parts of you you do not know of. In my interviews about immersion, at this point, the topic of discussion regularly ballooned into using drugs and other forms of manipulating the mind, getting into a different zone, which is the last approach we shall look at unusual mental states. For Kedrick, this is a topic of some importance. Coming of age in the late 70s, he is of the opinion that the art world, or society itself, has gradually forgotten about the value of changing the very apparatus with which it functions, the human mind. There seemed to be a brief glimmer when that was a subject worthy of investigation. I, I, I think we're now just way too far up the creek without a paddle to, you know, give much credence to people wanting to explore altered states um, of mind. Though, I, I, you know, I think that how then do you have new thoughts if we've already discussed the sense that with the barrage of what is already there everything's already there well how do you have new thoughts well i think sometimes it's by completely altering the perception that is the reception and the processing of those thoughts because you won't come up with new ones if you're using the same perceptions and the same processing techniques and tools that you know are being kind of foisted on you if you're using the automatic version of it as opposed to going and exploring it and trying to work it out for yourself. Um, you're not going to quickly or easily uh, find the new or the radically, the, you know, life-changing uh, techniques. Artificially adjusting perception, thought processes, effect, and drive is for some an art form in itself. An inventive pursuit to design devices or practices to overcome wonderlessness, induce bizarre states, and possibly open up otherwise obscure 
mental faculties. All the beautiful work of the 60s and 70s psychologists before they buried all their work. So people like Masters in Houston, um, Charles Tate, people like that, building their witches' cradles and things, finding ways to alter perception that were non-pharmaceutical or non-drug-related. Um, I, I think it's important to experience those states to go out there. I mean, I, I you know found myself through a phase of my life where I was running an art gallery with the opportunity to build a lot of those and experimented with things like, you know, um, the Burroughs Geisen dream machine, uh, stuff created some of my own mirror rooms and, um, where you could spin on a dais among a whole series of mirrors that had flashing lights so that you would experience this movement out of your body. Um, and, and I think those, you know, uh, states of mind, when you make them really dynamic, you start to be able to see through the really formidable walls of perception that we build. And you can actually start to know there is that, you know, you can't teach the shamanic journey. I, uh, people try to, I don't, not really sure how that goes for them, but, um, you, you can't teach those journeys. Those journeys happen or they don't. So at the same time, while we must be committed to allowing non-scientific or non, what's the word? allowing rapturous states to inform us more generally so that we got to stop being afraid of all that stuff. And thereby the list of eight means to stimulate creativity in times of feeling like a punctured beach ball is complete. What would be technique number nine or ten? Pauline LaBelle wanted to include rituals. Bass player Tony Overwater saw value in mental digestion, a conclusive resting and contemplation phase. Possibly making kitsch would loosen up tension of playfulness. Design something that entirely lacks authenticity but offers instantaneous gratification. Prick that bubble of your own standards just for the day. I left out some obvious ones such as collaboration and training yourself. But I do want to play one last clip wherein my friend Olio describes the benefits of getting to a point where you can work friction free. You need to get a lot of things to, to be automatic. It is re really difficult to write a novel with a dictionary in one hand and a grammar book on the other hand and trying to figure out how to make a sentence every time you're making a sentence. If, it really, a certain basic level of skill makes things flow really in a way that is more likely to, to be, to have that warmth of, that fullness of, uh, and the coherence of, of, of coming from someone's heart. 
coming from someone's heart. Litless. This heart turns inside out. And just now, the artist feels good. A melody is born and the world dances along. You have been listening to The Knots. A total of 18 hours of interviews has been recorded and all are available online. Professor, poet and musician Kedrick James. And I think that these different artistic practices and disciplines are ways of getting through all the mediation so that there's direct connection with the creative process. Video game music producer Neil Biggin. When I was when I felt comfortable enough in the position that I could just write my own music and to hell with everybody else, I think I wrote my best stuff. A round table discussion with both Neil and Kedrick, as well as Giorgio Magnanensi, creative director of Vancouver New Music. And, and for me that's the most joy liberating liberating possible way of being. The thing is is that there's this counter argument that I would voice. Pianist Lisa K. Miller. We just heard a police car. Uh, if they would ask you to design a new... Sure, that could be fun. Or make it like... like I don't know. <laughs> Writer and vocalist Pauline LaBelle. And I, f- I fell immediately asleep. And I slept deeply for 15 minutes. I woke up. I knew exactly what that scene needed. Bass player... Tony Overwater. In India, there's uh, what they call the deli belly. So sometimes some of us would have it and you would have a, okay, let's have a drum solo. And then the other guys would run to the toilet <laughs> and get back on stage. My friend, Ole Yule. Could you get that? I'm in the middle of an interview, but uh, why not? Oh dear, I'm sorry. Hello, hello. It's not Jennifer. It's a recording of Jennifer. Jennifer. You're a machine. You should listen to me. <laughs> See? Somebody was being very creative there. There's also a dialogue with art collector Trout Johnson. So I went to her studio. She said, oh, this is a piece I'm working on right now. I looked at where I left my cup of coffee this morning, and I liked the pattern it left, left in the napkin. And I was like, oh, now I know that I don't like it. And my father... Alan Laurier. When you tie your shoes in the morning, do you sometimes try to do it in a totally different way? I have done that, but I always go back to like I did when I learned it when I was five <laughs> or four. That's a faster way, but I haven't perfected it yet. <laughs> All these original recordings and a transcript of the full documentary can be found at the website thenots.com. And it is the knots, not knots. T H E N O T S dot com. Episode one released in twenty fifteen.